Quiet day today in the equity markets. The Dow Jones managed to inch up 37 points, uh, closing at 27,219. But you know, now we're less than 200 points away from a new all time record high in the Dow Jones. But you know, the real action today was in the bond market. You know, if you're suspicious on this Friday the 13th, and you were looking for bad luck, that's where you would have found it if people were long the bond market. And you know, I've been talking about this bond market bubble for a long time. I mean, it's been inflating for a long time. And whether or not it's actually popped, well, we'll have to wait a little longer to find out. But the carnage in the bond market that I mentioned on my last podcast has continued with bonds continuing to suffer. In fact, today was the biggest single-day decline of the entire move. The yield on the 10-year Treasury back up to nine, 1.903%. Now, of course, that's still a very, very low yield, 1.903%. But when you consider that a week ago, we were as low as one spot four. That is a huge increase percentage-wise in the yield on the 10-year bond, which means a big drop in prices. I'm not sure the percentage decline, maybe 5 or 6% was the drop, which, you know, in the stock market, that's not a big deal. I mean, stock prices could drop 5% in a week, you know, no big deal. But when the price of a bond drops by 5% in a week, especially a treasury bond, right? People think about treasury bonds as being risk-free. Well, there's actually a lot of risk, especially when you're buying a bond with such a low coupon, right? There's a lot of risk. If interest rates go up, then the value of that bond is going to go down. Now, in theory, you can hold the bond till maturity and you don't lose anything. But I guarantee you, if you buy a U.S. 10-year treasury, even at 1.9%, forget about the fool that did it at 1.429, but if you buy one at 1.9%, if you hold it for 10 years, you will be a huge loser, right? A, you're going to get a pitiful yield for the next 10 years, but 10 years from now, when you get your money back, it will buy a small fraction of what that money would have bought today. In other words, inflation is going to erode away the value of the bond, even if the government pays back 100 cents on the dollar, uh, because 100 cents isn't going to buy what a dollar buys today. That is the problem. But, you know, if somebody bought a 10-year treasury last week, right, which obviously people did, that's what pushed the price up. If they turned around and they wanted to sell it today at the end of the day because they decided they didn't want it anymore, if they lost 5 or 6% of their money, think about this. They were only going to get 1.429% interest every year for holding the bond. And so they've already lost in one week what they were expecting to gain in three years worth of interest payments. You see, if a stock price goes down 5%, well, you know, you were buying stock, you were hoping to make a big profit, right? You thought it can go way up. And so you knew you were taking risk and, you know, losing 5% in the stock market, I guess is not that big a deal. It's still a pretty decent move, but it pretty much happens all the time. I mean, every day there's at least one stock that goes down 5%. I mean, some stocks go down a lot more than that. They come out with bad news and they can go down 10, 15, 20% in one day. But most people, again, don't expect the bonds that they bought that they think are ultra safe and ultra conservative to go down. But I have been saying that the riskiest thing you could do is buy bonds. I mean, if the choice were U.S. stocks or U.S. bonds, I'd take U.S. stocks. Now, fortunately, I have other choices because I don't think U.S. stocks are are expensive, too, and they're going to go down. But they're not as expensive as bonds. And in fact, you know, one of the reasons that the bulls are able to justify the valuations of the stock market is they keep comparing it to the bond market and say, well, relative to interest rates, stocks are not expensive. Sure, relative to bonds that are extremely expensive. 
maybe stocks don't look as expensive. But the question is, how long can the bond bubble continue to inflate? Because once the bond bubble pops and interest rates rise, well, that changes the valuation of stocks. So the only way you can say that stocks are not overvalued is if you assume interest rates are going to stay down permanently. I have never made that assumption. I believe that eventually interest rates are going to skyrocket. They have to. And when that happens, now stocks have to be valued based on a much higher interest rates, which means as interest rates go up, stock prices will follow bond prices lower. In fact, we had as much carnage on the 30-year today. Remember, the 30-year was below 2%. It got down to 1.905 last week, and it closed today at 2 spot 378. I mean, almost back up at 2.4%. You know, I think the bond market has retraced, and I read this, uh, my son Spencer tweeted this out. I know a lot of you are following him, and so uh, if you're not, you should follow him on Twitter. But he pointed out that we have retraced 30% of the move in bonds over the last 10 months. It took 10 months for bond yields to fall as low as they did in this most recent move. And we've already reversed 30% of that move in just one week. So this has been a very violent move uh, in the bond market. It's also coincided with a correction in the price of gold and silver. Gold and silver prices down again today. Price of gold down a little over $10 an ounce, $14.87.90, I think is where we went out. Uh, we were as high as fifteen fifty and change. So now over a $60 correction uh, from the highs in the price of gold. Silver really got beat up today. It was down 65 cents, down at $17.41. We're now better than $2 off the high in the price of silver. So both silver and bonds falling. Now remember, uh, both silver and gold and bonds, rather, were thought of as safe haven assets. People were worried about the economy. They were worried about the trade war. And now all of a sudden, it seems that people are not as worried about the economy. They're not as worried about the trade war. And so the safe havens, bonds and uh, precious metals are coming down. Uh, but people have to realize there's a very big difference between gold and silver and bonds, because if the real threat is not just an economic slowdown, but a rise in inflation. If what's coming is stagflation, if the next recession is going to look different than the prior recession, where you see a big increase in consumer prices, in that type of environment, the worst place to be is bonds, and the best place to be is precious metals. So right now, these so-called safe havens, they're not diverging in that the markets really don't understand what's coming. And in fact, what I think is driving the, the moves this week, or at least causing people to uh, be less nervous about the economy, is number one, the trade tensions uh, appear at least to be lessening, right? The rhetoric is kind of backing down. Trump is not putting out as many uh, anti-China tweets. In fact, President Trump now... Um, uh, indicated his willingness to maybe enter into some kind of interim trade deal with China. Uh, and an interim deal would just be some kind of bridge gap deal between uh, the real deal that we're going to get, right? We can agree to have some kind of deal as, as a bridge, right? While we're negotiating the ultimate deal. That way, Trump can still uh, agree to some interim deal that basically sucks, but say, look, this isn't the real deal. This is just a bridge to get us to the real deal, which we're going to have. It's going to be this fantastic deal. It's going to be the greatest deal in the history of deals, except you're going to have to reelect me because, you know, we're not going to be able to consummate the deal and, and get the real good deal until after the next election uh, because, you know, they're hoping I'm going to lose. So we're going to agree to this crappy, uh, you know, interim deal, although he won't call it crappy. But he'll basically be able to have his cake and eat it, too, in that he can have some kind of a deal, but not actually have to agree to a deal that doesn't live up to all the expectations because he can still say that that deal is coming and he just agreed to this interim deal 
while the two sides are bargaining in good faith to get the real great deal that he has been promising all along. So I think this reduction in the rhetoric and attention, Trump also delayed some tariffs that were supposed to kick in on October 1st. I think now it's October 15th. So another gesture of goodwill showing that the tensions are de-escalating. But also people are looking at some of the economic numbers and thinking that things are not as bad as they thought. Now there, I disagree. I really haven't seen any improvement in the numbers that is significant enough to be responsible for this move up in uh, in interest rates or some type of renewed optimism in the economy. One of the data points that came out was the CPI that we got yesterday that came out a little bit stronger, a little bit hotter than expected. And the only number that really beat expectations was the core, because the headline number was supposed to be up 0.1, and it was up 0.1. And the year-over-year increase in the headline CPI, which is the you know the actual CPI, was supposed to come in at 1.7, which is a tad lower than the 1.8 we got in uh, July. This was an August number that we got. And we, we got an increase of 1.7%, so exactly what the markets expected. But the core inflation, which in July was up by 0.3, was supposed to only be up by 0.2. And instead, it was up by 0.3. So that's the beat. But to me, that doesn't indicate any real big uh, beat on inflation. I mean, you, you know, it's barely higher on the core level. Now, interestingly enough, though, the year-over-year core, where in July we were up 2.2. The consensus was for 2.3, and we got 2.4, which may not sound like a lot. And of course, you know, I'm sure it's actually much bigger than that because remember, these are government statistics, so they're not actually accurate. It's more like propaganda. But that 2.4% gain is actually the biggest year-over-year gain in the core CPI in 11 years. And, you know, so now you have a Fed, which is about to cut interest rates, right? And they're cutting interest rates, presumably because inflation is still too low, right? The Fed is saying that inflation is still below their target. Well, if their target is 2% and you're at 2.4, because, you know, when the headline number is higher, they always say, oh, we don't care about the headline, right? Because it's got all that volatile food and energy, We only want to look at the core. Well, here's the core year over year up 2.4%. If your target is 2%, well, 2.4 is well north of that target. And in fact, we're at 2.4 headed to three. And if the Fed continues to cut rates, as it clearly will, then that inflation number is expected to move higher. Now, higher inflation is, in fact, bad for bonds. And A lot of people are making the conclusion or jumping to the potentially wrong conclusion that the rise in interest rates is reflecting uh, increasing economic growth. Well, what if it's reflecting the uh, realization in the bond market that inflation is going to be higher than what people thought? And if inflation is going to be higher, then bond yields have to be higher because people now demand a higher rate of interest to compensate them for the loss of purchasing power. Remember, you know, I mentioned at the beginning on the 10-year, well, if a guy bought a 30-year bond uh, at the high last week and and he got a 1.9% coupon, he's stuck with a 1.9% coupon for the next 30 years. Well, how much is that bond worth a few years from now if inflation is 4% or 5%? I mean, you know, it's it's worth a substantial uh, decline, discount from what somebody paid. I mean, that is the risk. I mean, think about all the people who bought negative yielding bonds. I mean, those already should be worthless or, you know, worth a lot less because you're getting, you're simply getting your principal back, but every year you're having to pay instead of be paid. So actually a negative interest rate is like a liability. See, normally a bond is an asset to you because you collect interest. Well, if you buy a bond with a negative interest rate, it becomes a liability. You've basically put yourself into a situation where you've incurred a liability. You've taken an asset that you had and you've turned it into a liability. Well, that liability is even less valuable uh, when inflation is eroding away the principal that you get back after you've you know, 
um, satisfied your liability by paying a negative rate of interest over 30 years. But at least in the U.S., the interest rates didn't go negative, but they're still pathetically low. And rising inflation is eroding away the value. And I think that is more likely to be the cause of the increase in interest rates is the realization that inflation is picking up. Because if you look at some of the other economic data that came out, I mean, today we got the um, retail sales numbers. And people have been talking all day about how this August retail sales number was stronger than expected. And so they're trying to say that the bond market is selling off today because of this stronger than expected retail sales report that shows that the economy is you know, not as weak as people thought. Well, I mean, if you look at the beat, I mean, it really is minimal. I mean, this, this really doesn't explain anything. So they were looking for a increase of 0.2. And the range was minus 0.1 to plus 0.4. And we ended up getting 0.4. So yes, it was at the high end of the range, but it wasn't above the high end. And yes, it was double the consensus. But then if you strip out autos, they were expecting up 0.2, but we got zero. We got flat. So X autos missed as much to the downside as the headline number missed to the upside. And then if you strip out gasoline as well as autos, they were expecting 0.3 and we only got 0.1. So it's a mixed bag at best, right? It's not really stronger than expected, not really weaker. It's kind of a wash. And it doesn't explain this massive move in the bond market that took place today. You know, also, if you look at some of the other inflation news we got, we got the numbers on the Fed's balance sheet, which continues to rise now. I mean, there isn't an official quantitative easing program, but the Fed is back in the bond buying business. In the last week, the Fed's balance sheet increased by $8.2 billion. We're now at $3.77 trillion. Now, I think we're going to be back above $3.8 trillion pretty soon in the next couple of weeks, and soon we'll be back over $4 trillion. We went up $8.2 billion to $3.77 trillion. Uh, so it's not an official quantitative easing, but the Federal Reserve is creating money and buying government bonds, and the balance sheet is back expanding. And look at the money supply, M2. You get these numbers every week. M2, uh, for the week ended um, September 2nd, we got, we get, we, it got released yesterday, but it's, the numbers are for a prior week. But money supply was up $40.6 billion, which is a big move. That's a lot of increase in M2. All this, to me, shows inflation is picking up. But it doesn't mean that growth is picking up. See, a lot of people think that, well, if we have more inflation, we must have more growth. Because the way all the central banks talk about inflation, it's like this really good thing. And it, it signifies economic growth. But it's not. Real economic growth causes prices to come down, not prices to go up. What causes prices to go up is when the government inflates money supply, right? That's what's doing it. And so I think that what we're seeing potentially in the bond market is the beginning of the bursting of this bubble. And if yields continue to back up at this pace, at some point, the stock market is going to notice this and not think of it as a good thing. In fact, right now, the financials were among the strongest stocks. They're rising because they were going down as yields were falling. And now that yields are rising, people get bullish on the financials because they think, oh, they're going to make more money uh, because they're going to be able to have higher spreads when interest rates are rising. But I think the financials are a sell because what's going to happen in this next recession is they're going to be particularly vulnerable because a lot of the loans that were made during the bubble are going to go bad in the recession. And rising interest rates are going to help uh, expedite uh, that process. And of course, when the banks go to liquidate whatever collateral they had, real estate or whatever it was that they owned, prices are going to be going down and the losses to the banks are going to be going up. The real buy right now is gold and silver when people realize that it's inflation, right? It's the currency war, not the trade war. And bond prices are falling, not because of a relief that the economy is not going to be as bad as we thought, but because inflation is going to be worse than we thought. And it's going to be stagflation, uh, not just recession. You know, even though the, uh, the, the overall stock market was, you know, 
trending higher this week, we still did get some bombshells that should cause investors to be nervous. One of them was the IPO of Smile Direct. And I think this is the worst IPO in 20 years as far as performance. So this company, which makes these um, products that you use to straighten your teeth, it's kind of like home done uh, orthodontry, where you can save on the high cost of uh, going to an orthodontist and getting braces. It's kind of a do-it-yourself kit. And uh, the I'm not really sure how it all works because I haven't seen or used the product, but I know it was pretty pretty hyped up. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Anyway, they price this thing at $23 a share. And normally when they price an IPO, when the IPO starts trading, it pops to some degree, right? The first trading price is, is much higher, right? The IPO guys, the people that were able to get shares on the IPO, right? They were lucky enough to get the stock before it went public. Usually when it starts trading, it's at a much higher price, right? It's a premium. And now if they want, they can sell it and make a profit, right? And the other people, who investors that try to buy it, they can't buy it. Uh, for his lower price. I mean, a lot of times, you know, people really want to get these IPOs and, you know, they get cut back. They can't get everything that they want because, you know, they have to, you know, ration it out because everybody wants in on it because it's free money because you get to buy below the market. Well, in this case, the people who got lucky or in this case, unlucky and bought on the IPO, they paid $23 for their Smile Direct shares. The very first trade after the on the day, IPO day yesterday, the opening print was $21, I think, in 10 cents or something like that. So you're talking almost $2 less than the people who bought the IPO paid. So obviously, none of those people were smiling about their investment in, in Smile Direct. And then it went down from there. In fact, it went all the way down. The low yesterday was $16.28. I mean, that was almost 30% below the IPO price. So you bought the IPO. Right, you got lucky enough to get in on this IPO, and the day it goes public, you're already down almost 30% on your investment. It closed off the lows of the day. I think it closed down about 27.5%. So again, the worst performance, I think, in 20 years for any IPO. Now, today it bounced back a little bit, it was up 10.5%, it's back up to 1868 but still considerably below the $23. And this, again, ought to get investors to start to be a little bit nervous. 
when something like this can happen, it shows you that the the speculative fervor is 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 running out. That you can see, uh, you know, cracks in the armor here of this of this so-called bull market, this bubble. And it wasn't just smile direct. Look at what happened with uh, WeWork. And I, I talked about WeWork before on on the podcast. And you know. I think WeWork is going bankrupt. I mean, personally, because WeWork is overexposed to the commercial real estate market. I mean, they have a huge uh, property and leased out all this property in major cities. Uh, they're the biggest tenants and the biggest markets. And I think commercial real estate is going to get wrecked in this next downturn. And given the amount of debt that WeWork already has, uh, I, I just think this company goes bankrupt in uh, in the next recession. But in any event, you know, obviously, most of these uh, investors uh, in Silicon Valley, the people that are buying into these uh, unicorns, which is the name for all these uh, private companies that aren't publicly traded yet, they're all hoping for an IPO as uh, as an exit strategy. Uh, but they all trade with a valuation of over a billion dollars, uh, which uh, earns them the name of, of unicorn. But the last round of funding investors valued WeWork at $47 billion, right? So WeWork was able to do a round of financing where they sold equity in the business privately, where the investors were putting a valuation on the business of $47 billion. And based on a $47 billion valuation, they were investing, which means that they're expecting on an IPO for the company to be worth more than $47 billion. Because if it was worth less, right, then it would be worth less than what they paid. Now, I don't know, maybe those investors had some kind of clause. I mean, if they weren't idiots, they did, which said if the IPO price was lower than what they paid, that they would get their, their price adjusted and they would get issued more stock. I mean, I'm not sure about all the intricate details. I just know that $47 uh, was the official valuation of the last raise. Well, now they're talking about bringing this thing public if they can even get the IPO off the ground, because now a lot of people are starting to express the same concerns that I've been expressing when I talked about this thing in the past. Uh, a, a lot of it, too, having to do with the double dealing and self-interest of the company and their principles. Uh, but now they're talking about maybe putting a valuation of maybe 10 to 12 billion, which is a huge discount to the $47 billion of the last round. But, you know, in my opinion, that's still $10 billion too much because I don't think the company's worth anything because I think it's going bankrupt. Now, maybe it'll be worth something to the bondholders after they end up owning the company because the company goes into bankruptcy. But, you know, they've never made any money. They're losing billions and their losses are going up. It's not like they're losing less money where you can take a look at a trend and say, well, we were losing a lot of money, but the losses are declining, right? No, the losses are getting bigger. And it's just you have to accept it on faith that it's going to reverse. But I don't know why it would. So, But this, again, is another warning sign of the risks in the market. Also, look what happened today to the value of Juul, right? They make the uh, the e-cigarettes, vaping, and the, the government, right, is now coming out, the Trump administration. Now they want to ban e-cigarettes, right? Oh, they, these are bad for you. There's new studies out that show that maybe they're even more dangerous or worse for you than actual cigarettes. Maybe the e-cigarettes, which everybody initially thought were not as bad, right? Hey, let's get off our actual cigarettes and we'll take the, the, the e-cigarettes instead because they're not as bad. Well, now they're saying that they might actually be worse. But now if they're going to ban it, it's, you know, the whole valuation of Juul is going up in smoke. You know, Philip Morris paid a lot of money for a minority stake in that company. But now all the people who invested in Juul, right, have to write down the value of those investments. Because clear, if the U.S. market is blown up and they lose 80% of their, their sales, I'm not sure if they're banning everything or just certain products. But again, you know, Donald Trump liked to talk about the fact that he was, you know, deregulating. Well, this doesn't seem like deregulation. I mean, if you're going to start banning stuff, you know, if we are a free country, right, if if Americans are free, and of course we're not, but if we were free, then we would be free to do with our own bodies whatever we want, right? When you're free, you own yourself, right? That's the difference between freedom and slavery, right? If you're a slave, your master owns you, 
right? Now, if you live in a country, you know, where there's a king, right? Well, maybe the king owns you, right? Back in the days where you had monarchs and you were the subject and there was, you know, you, you, you were the property of the king, right? Or under some type of communist country where you're owned by the state, right? That's what you have in communism. Uh, you know, the state owns you, right? They tell you what you're going to do and they tell you how much you can earn, right? They, you know, it's all a command economy, right? You give up your own autonomy, your own self-ownership. But in America, in a free country, you're supposed to own yourself. And if you own yourself, you could do whatever you want with yourself. That's why all of these laws, you know, these victimless crimes, you know, drugs or prostitution or gambling, I mean, if you own yourself, then it should be up to you how you want to use your own body or what you want to put into your own body. And if vaping is harmful, well, if you want to harm yourself, then go right ahead and do it. You know, now I don't believe that companies should lie to you and tell you that a product is safe when they know it's not safe, right? That would be wrong. And you can sue a company if they deliberately mislead you about uh, the product, if they know it's dangerous and they don't warn you. But so if if electronic cigarettes are harmful uh, and could cause health problems and let the manufacturers put those labels clearly on their products, and then if you want to use it, despite the fact that it may harm you, then go right ahead and use it, right? That's the definition of a free country. You're free to do things that may be stupid. You're free to do things that other people might not do. That's, uh, you know, that that's what freedom means. But unfortunately, that's not what we have in America. You know, the government basically uh, is in charge and they, they, you know, they take over the economy and they take over our personal lives as well. I guess uh, now that I've started to talk about government, it's a good time to talk a little politics. Uh, you know, we had the Democratic national debates uh, were on last night and, uh, you know, it was actually on opposite uh, Thursday night football. Uh, so what I decided to do, I was watching the game, but I had the volume on mute so I could listen to the debate, but I could still, you know, watch the football game. And basically kind of towards the end of the, the debate, I realized that, you know, if I would have had a much more intelligent uh, a commentary, had I just muted the debate instead of the game, right? Because, I mean, these guys are a bunch of morons. I mean, other than, I guess, again, Andy Yang, again, you know, he says some intelligent stuff. You know, I mean, he's the only guy that does. But, of course, his solutions are all wrong, right? Yang pointed out a lot of the problems in the healthcare system. 100% agree with him. But every single problem he pointed out was caused by government. And the solution to those problems is to get government out of healthcare, to get government out of insurance. That's why it's so screwed up. He's correct in pointing out a lot of the problems, but his solution isn't going to solve it, right? His solution might make it worse. But the rest of the guys, all they did, and gals, of course, not they're not all guys, but very little substance in this debate. I mean, I thought it was very, very weak. Uh, and, you know, ABC, I think, did a pretty bad job with this, with this debate. But basically, all they did is talk about all the free stuff, right, that, that people should get. I mean, there's no real substantive issues about how to fix any of the problems that they may see in the economy. It was all about free stuff. I mean, education in particular, everybody was talking about, we got to forgive all the student loans. We have to wipe out all the student loans. Okay, great. Yeah, that's, you know, if you're a student, that's fantastic, right? They're, they're buying votes, right? And they're, uh, and they're giving you money. In fact, the guy that really stepped it up on buying votes was Andy Yang. He actually started off the debate by saying that he was going to start giving his freedom dividends $1,000 a month right now. He's not even waiting to get elected. He's going to use his campaign money, right? Uh, and he is going to give 10 families that are picked at random $1,000 a month for a year. And they're going to be like the tech subjects. All you had to do is go to his website and just sign up for the lottery. I went there and I signed up. So if I get lucky, I'm going to get $1,000 a month for 12 months. I get 12 grand from the Yang campaign. So he's he's buying the votes before they're even counted, right? But, you know, at least this scheme, none of the money that Yang is giving out was stolen from taxpayers. See, normally when politicians are buying votes, they're doing it with money they steal from other taxpayers. Here, Yang is trying to buy votes using the money he gets from his donations from his first campaign. So, I mean, that's a much more honest way to do it. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see if I get uh, some of that money from Yang. I doubt, I mean, I usually don't win these things, so I'm sure the odds are pretty slim, but I bet he collects a lot of, a lot of names. He's going to get a lot of, um, a lot of email addresses as a result of giving away 
all of this money. But in addition to, you know, helping out the students, right, and getting rid of all the student loans, every single candidate kept talking about how teachers, right, teachers need to get paid more, right? Every single uh, candidate agreed we need to pay teachers more money. Now, I guess, you know, do they mean that the federal government needs to subsidize all the salaries, right? The federal government now has to put all these local teachers on the federal payroll and supplement what they're getting paid because the teachers aren't paid by the federal government. They're paid by the local school districts. So how are the local school districts going to all of a sudden start giving all the teachers raises? Where's the money going to come from? I mean, they'd have to raise taxes to do it. And property taxes are already very high. So I don't know if they're talking about some government program where every teacher is just going to get money directly from the federal government. But of course, you know, this is great for the teachers, right? Oh, yeah, I'll vote for you, right? Every teacher is going to vote Democrat if the Democrats are promising to give all the teachers a raise. Right now, I guess the people who aren't teachers, right, they get the short end of this stick, right, because they have to pay for that raise, right, if they don't get the raise, but it's coming from uh, taxes. Uh, But I guess, you know, when you're talking about raises for teachers, nobody seems to object to that because it's all about education. And it's very easy to say the teachers are underpaid because they do such a great job. They're educating our kids and they're not getting paid as as much as other professionals. And I've already went over why this is a bunch of BS because when they compare what teachers make to what other people make, they don't factor in the fact that teachers get all this time off. They have summers off. They have long vacations. So if you adjust what they're making relative to how much time they're working, they're not underpaid at all. In fact, they're probably overpaid. In fact, I think most teachers in general are overpaid. That's the problem. I mean, there are some good teachers that are underpaid, but there's a lot of lousy teachers that should be fired that are still teaching. That's the problem with these teachers unions is you don't get rewarded for being good and you don't get punished for being bad. Everybody makes the same. It's based on how long you've been there, right? Not how good a job you're doing, but how long you've you've been at your job. So just paying teachers more isn't going to do anything to make the educational system better. Right. The only thing that would make the educational system better would be to change it completely and go to a free market in education. Just pouring more money down the government education rat hole isn't going to do anything. Right. And it's not all just going to go to the teachers. It goes to the administrators. It goes to all the principals. There's a whole educational racket out there. And yes, they pretend it's about the kids, but it's not about the kids at all. The only education system that's about the kids is private schools. And you know, one of the things like Elizabeth Warren, when she's ragging against health insurance and she mentions all the profits that health insurance companies are making. And she says, you know, those profits are just being sucked out of the the system. Like Like the reason insurance is so expensive is because the insurance companies are making a profit. Well, look, all companies make a profit. If they don't make a profit, they go out of business. Right. All the tech companies make profits. Right. Do those. uh, But, you know, technology prices are going down. Right. All all the companies that make cell phones, they make profits, but cell phone prices are going down. I mean, the profits are not stopping prices from falling. In fact, it's the pursuit of private profit. This is what uh, socialists don't understand. Right. They think profit is evil. Profit is good. Because profit comes from keeping quality up and cost down. That's how you get a profit. You get a profit because you're able to deliver a product that is more valuable to the consumer than what he pays you to receive it. And the profit is your reward for doing that, for satisfying the needs of your customers better than a competitor. The problem in the government, when the government runs something like education, government schools, there is no profit. And if there is no profit incentive, then no one gives a damn about the customer. See, if you go to a private system or a private school, private schools have to do a really good job of educating the students. And they have to do it in a cost-efficient manner. Because if they don't, the parents aren't going to pay. They're going to take their kids and put them in a different private school. So in order to make a profit, you have to do a really good job. You have to deliver on your promises. You have to come out with a quality product, which in the case of education is you have to take these kids and you have to actually educate them. They have to get good grades. They have to do well on standardized tests. They have to get into good colleges, right? That's what makes a good private school and you have a good reputation and parents will 
you know, willingly send their kids there. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet full of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, you're sure to find your next closet go-to from American Giant. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code S-T-A-P-L-E-2-0. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. But when it comes to public school, you have a captive audience. Most people, particularly in inner cities, can't afford to pay the taxes to fund the public schools and then come up with extra money for private schools. So the kids are trapped in these lousy schools. And, and the schools don't give a damn. They don't care if the kids learn anything or not. The teachers aren't going to get paid anymore if the students do better. The administrators aren't going to make any more money. All the public schools are run for the benefit of the administrators and the school teachers. The private schools are run for the benefit of the students because that's the only way they can stay in business is by doing a good job. All the public schools would be out of business, right, if parents had a choice. But the fact is they don't. And this is another example of socialism, right? We have socialism in education, and that's why it sucks. And where we have capitalism in education, we have much better education. You know, apart from the debates, look at some of these articles that I read this week uh, on education. One of them, California. This is California school system. They just passed a bill. I'm not going to sure is this law yet or not, but I think it is. It goes into effect next year. But according to this new law in California, it is going to be illegal to suspend a student. And I forget how up to what grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, I forget where it is. But you cannot suspend a student no matter how bad they're behaving, right? There is no conduct that is so bad that is going to merit uh, suspension. So no matter how disruptive to the learning environment a particular student may be, no matter what he is doing to obstruct Right. The other students who actually want to learn and who are behaving, if you have a misbehaving, unruly kid, you got to leave them there, meaning that teachers are going to have to spend more and more time trying to rein in uh, these unruly kids because they can't kick them out. Right. No matter no matter how bad they do. Now, what kind of asinine thing is this? You think a private school would ever do that? You think if a kid was misbehaving? in a private school and disrupting learning for the other kids and the parents are paying money for their kids to learn. You think they're going to allow, you know, some disruptive kid to no, kick his ass right out. They won't just suspend him. They'll expel him. You're gone, right? Because they, they have to do a good job for all the other parents. But in public schools, no, no, no. They, and the rationale for this supposedly is that, you know, I guess a higher percentage of minority kids were getting suspended. Right, because I guess a higher percentage of minority kids were behaving badly and they were getting suspended not because they were minorities, but because they were behaving badly. But because a greater percentage of minorities behave badly and thus are being suspended, the act of suspension is now labeled racist. So now nobody can be suspended. 
right? No matter how bad they are. So if you thought the public schools in California were bad and they are, well, they're about to get a whole lot worse. I mean, this, all this stuff is so nonsense about, you know, disparate outcome. Like I even read this thing about American University. Apparently uh, they hired some guy and, you know, uh, some professor, but he's advocating some kind of theory. And I guess he's uh, maybe he's an, an English professor or something, but he wants to grade papers, uh, English papers, right, where you you write something. Not based on, you know, the quality of the work, you know, not grading the grammar or the spelling or, you know, did you do a good job uh, in organizing your thoughts and is it well written? None of that is going to count. All that counts is how much work went into it, how hard you tried, how much time you spent. So even if it's nonsense, right, even if you wrote a bunch of gobbledygook, even if you spelled every word wrong, you got none of the grammar right. As long as you spent time doing it, well, well you could still get an A. And the whole idea was that, you know, it's, it's, it's racist to hold minorities or African-Americans to the same standard uh, because they're not learning uh, English the right way or some nonsense like that. But I mean, this is you're doing a huge disservice to African-American kids if you let them hand in a bunch of nonsense and then you give them an A and you let them graduate and go into the real world. Because in the real world, none of that matters. You have to know how to write. I mean, if you're getting a job that requires writing, it's not going to be about your effort. It's going to be about the actual product that you produce, the outcome. I mean, it doesn't matter how long you work. If you produce something with no value, then it has no value. But this is what's going on with the government uh, educational system. Everything is going down to the lowest common denominator. But again, you're never going to get quality in education as long as the government is running it. And that's why all these government solutions to healthcare, all these Democrats are talking about how great healthcare is going to be once the government starts providing it, Medicare for all, single payer. If you really want to have quality health care, if you want to have the best health care at the lowest cost, then it's the free market that's going to deliver it. And the reason the free market isn't delivering it now is because we don't have a free market. And that's because government screwed it all up because politicians wanted to get votes. And so they promised a lot of BS to get votes and they screwed up what could have been a great free market system. So what we need to do is get government out. Right? We need to repeal all these rules and regulations that run up the cost of health care. We need to separate insurance from employment, which is only tied to employment because of the tax code. So we need to change the tax code so that's no longer the case, so that people buy insurance, health insurance, the way they buy their auto insurance or their, their fire insurance or their life insurance. It's not going to be tied to your job. You know, and we got to go back to where people are paying for routine medical care out of pocket, that insurance is for major medical problems, right? Just like, you know, you buy auto insurance, it doesn't cover your gas, it doesn't cover getting new tires, it doesn't cover your tune-ups, you pay for this stuff yourself. Your auto insurance is in case you have a wreck, right? Well, life, your health insurance is in case you get cancer or you get hit by a bus. It's not for routine medical uh, uh, care, but now that's what's happening. And all this third-party payers, and again, I don't want to make this whole podcast about why health insurance and health care is so expensive, because I could talk for hours about that, and people are already complaining that my podcasts are long enough. In fact, if you have been complaining that the podcasts are too long, now a lot of people like the long podcasts, but you know, FYI, you can pause them, right? I mean, because the podcasts, I normally, when I do these podcasts, and by the way, I miss this, uh, my last podcast was number 500. I didn't even realize I had done 500 until I saw some people pointing it out in the comments. So I've done 500. Now this is number 501. But I typically you know, cover multiple topics in these podcasts. So you don't have to listen to the whole thing in one sitting. You know, you could take a break when I switch topics. It's almost like, you know, I could cut it up. I could come up with a lot more podcasts that are shorter, or I could just do one when I have time and, and, and say what's ever on my mind. But you can listen to these things uh, any way you want. Although I know, you know, Joe Rogan does these three-hour podcasts. He gets tens of millions of people listening to those. So obviously length is no uh, barrier to people listening to podcasts. But maybe I will do another podcast in the future you know, in more in-depth. In fact, I'm sure I've already done one at some point explaining how the government has totally uh, screwed up healthcare. But I just want to get back to the topic of, of these debates, the democratic debates. But it was just a bunch of nonsense. Just all this stuff that's going to be there for free. And, and where's, you know, how who's going to pay for all this free stuff? The rich. You know, I like the way Elizabeth Warren 
talks about her new uh, wealth tax. She just says, I want to make the rich pay two cents. That's all. All they have to do is pay two cents. You're, everybody's going to get free health care. Everybody's going to get all their student loans forgiven. And all we're asking is that the rich pay two cents. You know, hey, it sounds nothing. Oh, two cents. Yeah, they can't write a check for two cents. Oh, are these rich people so greedy that they won't give two cents just so we can have all this stuff? I mean, two cents, right? Her wealth tax is 2%, right? Which is two cents on the dollar. But that's two cents of every dollar. You're not paying two cents once. You're paying two cents on every dollar of assets you own. And it's not a one-time thing. You have to pay that two cents every year which means after 10 years, you've now paid 20 cents. You've now paid 20% of the value of your asset. Now, of course, if you have more than a billion dollars in assets, which obviously very few people have, but there are plenty of people who do, the wealth tax goes up to 3 cents, 3% per year. If you're paying 2% a year, after 10 years, that's 20% of the value of your asset. And if it's 3% after 10 years, that's 30% of the value of your asset paid in taxes. That is a lot of money. Now, though, some people might think, well, the assets go up in value by more than 2% a year. Not necessarily. I just went over on a podcast, uh, residential real estate, high-end real estate in Connecticut is worth less today, nominally, than it was 20 years ago. Well, can you imagine if a wealth tax like that had been in effect and people are paying 2 or 3% per year in addition to their property taxes, which are already a couple of percent per year? You know, it's like a federal property tax. This is a tremendous amount of money. This isn't just two cents. This adds up to, you know, billions and billions or trillions of dollars over time if it was actually enacted. And again, I've talked in the past about how the wealth tax is completely unconstitutional. And so we'll see, hopefully, this, the judges, and that's one of the, the best things that uh, Trump has done is appoint justices to the Supreme Court that might strike down a wealth tax if it ever gets through uh, Congress, which it you know, may easily do if the Democrats sweep uh, as I expect them to in 2020 and we have one of these uh, morons becomes uh, the president, we could have that tax. But it would be a very destructive tax to the economy. In fact, it's going to destroy wealth. That's what a wealth tax does. Whatever you tax, you get less of, right? That is an economic truism. If you tax something, you will get less of it. Just like if you subsidize something, you will get more of it. Well, if you tax wealth, then you get less wealth. Well, if you have less wealth, you have less economic growth. So all of the problems uh, will get bigger. All the problems that the Democrats are concerned about will be enlarged by a reduction in wealth. I mean, and now the, the, uh, the Democrats say, well, it'll be better. We're just going to take that wealth and we're going to invest it someplace else. They're not going to invest it. They're going to take money that would have been invested and they're going to blow it. They're just going to spend it. They're going to turn investment into consumption, which is the very definition really of undermining your economic growth. You're indulging your present, but you're sacrificing the economic growth of the future. In fact, Elizabeth Warren came out, and this is, I don't even think she talked about this in the debates. I don't recall. But now, now she is promising everybody on Social Security an extra $200. And in fact, I think she even wants to tailor Social Security benefits so that women and minorities and the disabled actually get extra money, which I don't even know how they do that legally. I mean, how do you turn this into a program that's based on your gender or your race, right? You get more Social Security if you're a woman. I mean, it seems like the white guys are really getting screwed in this deal because they don't get anything. They don't get a special benefit. Now, I don't know, maybe if you're if you're gay, because it didn't mention, I read an article and it said that minorities would get extra, but I don't know if it also meant, you know, if you're gay, if you're part of the LBGQ community, does that make you a minority? And now do you get extra Social Security money because of that status? Because obviously, if you are, I mean, anybody can just claim that they're gay, right? If you could get extra money for being gay, we'll just say you're gay, right? I mean, how are they going to prove you're not? I mean, I doubt that if you said that you were gay, right, if a straight man claimed to be a gay man because he could get extra Social Security money because he was gay, I doubt the government is going to make you prove that you're gay, right? I mean, not, I mean, there's no way that they would be able to do that. Uh, so just say you're gay. I mean, that's it. So, I mean, the whole thing seems ridiculous. But how does she want to fund 
this because Social Security is already broke. We need to cut Social Security benefits. Yet Elizabeth Warren is promising to increase them. And how does she want to increase them? Well, she wants to tax the rich. She wants to make the Social Security tax you know, apply to all your income, not max out uh, at uh, you know, 100 and whatever thousand it maxes out now, but all the way up on every dollar. That's 16% tax, Social Security and Medicare combined, which again would make Social Security, again, more of a welfare system uh, because now you would have people who are contributing much more into it than they get out. I mean, supposedly, to make it look like it wasn't welfare, which it was, right, the more you contributed to Social Security, the more you got. And that's why they it maxed out, because once you hit a certain income level, then you couldn't get any additional benefit. So because you couldn't get any additional benefit, there was no additional tax, because supposedly this wasn't welfare. This was supposedly you getting back your own money. It was supposedly a retirement scheme. Of course, the whole thing was a fraud from the day that uh, Roosevelt sold the American people on it and conned them into accepting it. But they basically remove all pretense that it's not welfare if you eliminate the cap and you say, hey, these rich people have to pay all this extra tax, but they're not going to get any extra benefits, right? Somebody who's making a million dollars a year is going to pay a lot more tax in Social Security under Warren's plan than someone who's making 150000 a year. But they're both going to get the exact same benefit, of course, unless one is a woman or a minority, then they get even extra. And I'm not even sure how that you know comes in. But obviously, she's playing to the base of the Democratic Party, right? All these minorities are now going to get all this extra money uh, just because uh, they're minorities. But of course, it's not just the Democrats, right? Um, you know, the Republicans also want to give away free stuff. It just comes in a different form because Donald Trump today, I'm reading about how Donald Trump is promising middle-class tax cuts, right? He's going to announce sometime next year, middle-class tax cuts, a big, huge middle-class tax cut that's going to be implemented after the next election, as long as he is reelected and we have a Republican Congress. Well, now we're going to have this big tax cut uh, for the middle class, which is the Republican version of a free lunch, right? The Democrats are giving away free stuff in the form of government benefits, right? Something for nothing where you get something that you didn't earn. Well, the Republicans have their own version of getting something for nothing, right? Where you get a tax cut. Now, personally, yes, I believe that when a Republican says, I'm going to let you keep more of what you earn, right? You've earned this money and we're going to take less of it. That is different than saying, we're going to give you money you didn't earn. We're going to take money from other people who earned it and give it to you. See, that free stuff is based on theft. So as far as a moral plane goes, that's the lower part of it, right? If I'm going to get free stuff knowing that the money was stolen from another person, that's, you know, that's theft. So that's, you know, and I think it's the moral equivalent of theft. So what the Republicans are not promising is that. What they're saying is we're going to cut your taxes, but they're not saying we're going to cut government spending. And so the freebie that Republicans are giving out is free government. See, they're saying, we're going to cut your taxes, but we're not going to reduce any of the government programs that you may or may not benefit from, right? Because a lot of people paying taxes also get Social Security, or maybe they get a farm subsidy, or who knows what they get. But when Republicans say, we're going to cut taxes for the middle class, but we're not going to cut spending on any of the programs that benefit the middle class, they're in effect giving Republican voters government for nothing. So if they're not promising, if Trump is not saying, I am going to cut all these government programs, and when I reduce the cost of government, when I make government smaller, then I'm going to be able to cut taxes. That's honest. That, 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 that is, makes sense, right? We're going to shrink government, and we're going to let the taxpayer off the hook, right? That's one of the reasons to be against big government, because big government is expensive, but what Trump is telling Republicans is you can be in favor of big government because it's not expensive, because we're going to cut your taxes. As we're making government bigger, we're going to cut your taxes. See, what Trump should be saying, if he wants to be honest, is we're going to make government bigger and we're going to raise your taxes so we have the money to pay for it. See, at least the Democrats say we want to make government bigger and we want to raise taxes, but they're dishonest about who they want to tax. They say well, we want to make government bigger, but we're going to make the, the rich pay all the cost, which never happens. The rich don't pay the cost. Remember, I went over this many, many times on the podcast. 
when they got the public to buy into the income tax, the initial top bracket was like 6%. That was it. And it didn't start on incomes that were, you know, the equivalent today of many, many millions of dollars a year. So the income tax was a soaked the rich tax that was just meant for the Carnegie's and the Vanderbilt's and the Rockefeller's. Well, now you have middle-class Americans paying a much higher rate of tax uh, than was envisioned for, you know, the billionaires, right? So, you know, once the government gets its nose under the tent, that's what happens. And I'm sure the same thing would happen. The Democrats always lie. They promise bigger government and that the rich are going to pay for it. So they make government bigger. And lo and behold, the money they get from the rich doesn't cover the cost. And then the middle class has to pick up the slack. Now, if you recall, uh, Donald Trump played that same trick before the midterm elections. Remember, before those elections, all of a sudden, Donald Trump started talking about some new tax cut that he was uh, you know, planning, and it was going to be after the election. I don't know what it was. It was a big middle-class tax cut, uh, some targeted middle-class. They were going to add that to the tax cut that they already passed, and it was kind of you know, a carrot that they dangled in front of the voters prior to the midterms. Now, of course, the midterms came and went, and we never got the tax cuts. Now, part of the problem, obviously, is the uh, Republicans lost the House of Representatives, and you know, all tax bills have to start in the House. And so once uh, the Republicans lost the House, then they basically lost the ability uh, to bring forth any uh, tax cuts. Now, I'm sure the Democrats would have been potentially in favor of a tax cut for the middle class. But of course, they would have wanted to pay for it by raising taxes on the rich, something that the Republicans would have been against. And so the whole, uh, you know, talk of a tax cut disappeared until now it reemerges as another campaign issue uh, for uh, 2020. But of course, this time, not only will the Republicans uh, lose uh, the Senate, which is the other chamber that they still hold, but they're likely to lose the White House, too. So these tax cuts are not going to happen. 